thank you so much for your love and your grace. It is still about the cross. It's who you are and what you did on Calvary that brought salvation for our, from our sins. We thank you. We praise you for that. And I ask this morning as we open up your word to see what you have to say to us, that you would remind us that you are the one who paid the price. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for it's in your precious name that we pray. Amen. And amen. I want you to open your Bibles this morning to the first gospel of the Bible. That's the book of Genesis. And I want us to go to chapter 14. Dave's been sharing with us through this book, and last week we got into the 13th chapter of Genesis, when we talked about Abraham and Lot, how they made decisions, and they went separate ways. And I got to thinking about that, and I thought, you know, there are a lot of us here today who experience some of the things like Abraham must have experienced at a time like that. So I want you to just think with me for a little bit. Maybe we can just have a little therapy session or D-group or whatever you want to call it. We're all going to just sit down and we're going to share about some things in life. And one of the things that I'm thinking about in particular this morning about a time in your life when you have somebody, may have been a, a sibling, maybe a child, a grandchild, a niece, a nephew, maybe a close friend, but someone for whom you'd prayed and cared, you tried to provide their needs, you tried to teach them, train them, you tried to steer them in the right direction. But whatever you did, they kind of went their own way. They were like a lot. They made a decision. And we could all share our stories, but then we need to invite somebody else who's going to share his story. This is man is an extremely wealthy individual. He is an octogenarian in his 80s. His name is Abraham. And when he sits down to tell his story, we all have to listen because Abraham says, folks, you think you had a tough time. Let me tell you about what happened to me. He said, I have this nephew. You might call him a favorite nephew. And when God called me to leave uh, my homeland and come to a different place, I brought my nephew Lot with me. I took care of him. I helped him, uh, trained him, tried to share with him my faith uh, in God. And I, I blessed him, and God blessed us. In fact, he, he uh, became so successful in his own right that we, we had to split and go our different ways. And so we did that. But Lot made a decision, and Lot's decision was to go to the green pastures. And Abraham said, you may need to be careful when you hear somebody else talk about going to the green pastures. I tried to warn my nephew, tell him, Lot, you better be very careful this choice you're making looks like a great choice, a good choice, but there are dangers with that. And he told me, he said, Unc, look, I got this. Uh, I, I understand all that you've taught me, and I appreciate that, but it's time for me to launch out on my own, and, and I, I know what I'm doing, and, and that's where I need to go and take care of my family, take care of my flocks. That's the place for me. And Abram would say, but Lot, there, there are some bad cities down there. Maybe you've not read recently about Sodom 
or Gomorrah, evil cities and evil influences. Lot said, I, oh, I know. I got that. I'll stay clear of that. But then Lot made his move. His daughters grew. And as his daughters grew, they began to think about the city. They saw the shopping centers. Always a dangerous thing for daughters to think about. So they thought about the shopping malls in Sodom and Gomorrah and the movie theaters and the bright lights and all the glamour and all the social life that they could find. And they told me, said, Dad, we're, we're, we're tired of, of smelling sheep and camels every night when we go to bed. We, we want to move to the city. So they moved to the city, Abram said. And, you know, I warned him. I tried to teach him. But they got to the city, and what, what he did not understand was that these cities that he's talking about, Sodom, Gomorrah, and several others around that area, these cities were all under the control of some foreign power, kings, from the far-off distant land of Mesopotamia. And these cities were obligated to these kings and paid tribute. And they did that for 12 years. But in the 13th year, they thought, we're tired of paying tribute to these foreign kings. We're going to take matters in our own hands. And so they stopped paying. Guess what the kings did? Well, the kings got together and they came after them in the 14th year. When they came after them in the 14th year, they came and they conquered these five kings and their five cities, and they, they plundered them, and they took many of their citizens with them to enslave them. And guess what happened to my nephew? He had made a bad decision. He had gone to a wrong spot. And now I heard the word that he was taken in slavery, a captive, and taken away. Five kings losing many of the people of their cities and all of their precious belongings. And Abram said, that's the way it happened to me. I was trying to live right. I was trying to do the right thing. I wanted to protect him. I wanted to help him, but he did not listen, and he left. Well, Abram, what did you do? Well, let's read what he did. Genesis, the 14th chapter. And I want to pick up at the 14th verse. If you'll need some explanation as to why I start with verse 14, then I'll confess and repent, and we can all go back and read in unison the first several verses. I think you're happy to pick up Abraham's testimony in the 14th verse. In verse 14, the Bible says, When Abram heard that his kinsman, Lot, had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them. And he went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, uh, and he and his servants, and defeated them, and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions, and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. After his return from the defeat of Kedor Lo Amer, 
and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the valley of Sheba, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high. And he blessed Abram and said, blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. See what Abram did? Can't you just imagine one evening when the word comes to Abram, what had happened with his nephew Lot, and how that he had been taken along with uh, residents of five different cities. Now he's taken captive, and all their possessions have gone with it. What's Abram to do? I'm sure they had a real discussion that night, Abram and Sarai. What are we going to do? And she said, Abram, you got to leave him alone. Let him go. You've warned him. You've told him. Leave him alone. And as you know, Lot still doesn't learn his lesson. But Abram said, but Sarah, he's my nephew. I raised him. I tried to teach him. I gave him all these things and, and set him up in business. And he's made bad choices, but he's still family. And besides, God promised me that he would bless me and bless my family. And those who blessed us, he would bless. And those who came against us, uh, he would judge. And he's my nephew. I've, but she said, but Abram, you know, you're, you're a, a, a shepherd, a sheep herder. These are kings with their armies. He said, I've got to do what I've got to do. And he did. And he went after them. And God intervened. You might ask the question, now, how could a, how could a nomadic sort of sheep herder uh, like Abram, how could he muster enough men and go and defeat these five kings or four kings from Mesopotamia? Well, I can tell you how he did it. Uh, several things. Number one, Abram was extremely wealthy. He had many, many flocks and herds. And uh, to protect his flocks and herds, he would have trained men. These were guys that weren't just timid around the sheep. These men had a job to protect the sheep and to protect those who kept the sheep. They were trained. The Bible said he had 318 of these trained men. Not only would they protect his flocks from wild beasts and animals, but also from uh, uh, traveling thieves and robbers and murderers who liked to plunder and, and steal the sheep. And Abram had these men. They're trained. They're prepared. They know what to do. And so Abram gathers 313 of them. He had a lot of sheep. 313. And he went off after, uh, chasing after these kings that had taken the plunder. They traveled a, a roughly 125 miles north as the crow flies. If you're walking, it's a whole lot farther than that. But he goes, travels north to Dan and catches up with these kings. And he engages them in battle. And the Bible said he chased them all the way to Hovah as the crow flies, roughly 50 miles east, northeast. But that says the crow flies. Because if you've ever been to Israel and you've been north to Dan, you know that between Dan and Hovah, is the tallest mountain 
in that part of the world, 9,000 feet tall, covered by snow year-round. They didn't chase them over the mountain. They'd go around the mountain, chased them a long way, and got the captives and brought them back. Many of the soldiers would have been occupied trying to guard these captives, and, and uh, Abram was able with his trained men to overcome them, overwhelm them, and bring them all back. Oh, there's one other factor, too, that I haven't mentioned that enabled Abram to win this battle. It's a small factor. Maybe you haven't considered it. Abram had somebody else on his side. You know who else was on Abram's side? God. And you know, God may just represent one, <laughs> but when God's on one side, you better be on that side because God has all power. And if he could use 300 men to help Gideon defeat foreign armies, he can certainly use 318 trained uh, men to help Abram bring his nephew home. And God answered that prayer and brought him home by his power. Well, what do we gather from this that we're reading this morning? Well, let me mention three things here. The first one is this. This story that we have is in the Bible. You can trust it. What we have here is a book that we can trust. Whether we're talking about historical details from uh, thousands of years ago, 4,000 years ago, whatever it is that we're looking at, you can trust this book. Now, there have been critics through the years, many critics. Critics are little bitty people who think that it makes them much larger to find error into something that is true. And they go to the Bible and they look at things like this and said, this is ridiculous. It's a myth. It's a legend. It never happened. Let me tell you, it's in the Bible. I would rather trust an eyewitness who shares his story than trust those who 4,000 years later think it doesn't matter and it never really happened. They can't even pronounce the names of many of these kings back there. They don't know what they were. And they said, no, this is ridiculous. These names are ridiculous. This never happened. It never took place. Well, how do they know it never took place? Let me tell you why there have been so many people to criticize the Bible and talk about errors that they find in the Bible. They have a very legitimate reason for trying to do that. What is their reason? Their reason is this. If the Bible is not true, and if you can't trust what you read in the Bible, then you're not going to have to worry about anything the Bible says. If God hasn't given us his word here, why do we need to go here to try to find out anything about God? Why should we care? If we can prove you can't trust the Bible, you can't trust the book, then we can make our own decisions. We can decide for ourselves what is right and what is wrong. But on the other hand, if this book is true, and if it is God's word, then one day we will stand to answer to God's word as it's given in this book. The critics have said these things could not happen. There are a lot of things the critics talked about. 
One of the things the critics talked about were, were some of these names and these people, and they said, we don't know anything about these kind of people. Well, they spoke too soon. Because we have some people called archaeologists and historians who have been busy doing their work. And you know what they found? That time after time after time, they found that the situation, the scenario, the way things happen, how it happened, all of that exactly fits the time of this man, Abram, as presented in the Old Testament. We find the Bible is true. Not even 50 years ago, the archaeologists began digging in a place called Tel Mardik, and they began to uncover whole libraries of documents. And guess what they found in there? They found in there many names just like these names. They found names of kings and people and names of cities, and many of those are exactly like these names. In fact, at first they said they had found the actual names of the kings mentioned here and the cities from which they've come. Some have questioned that appraisal, but the point is they painted a picture that exactly fits what we have in the Bible. Now, David didn't come along for another thousand years, but for years we heard about scholars, historians, who said that a David probably never existed. Or if David uh, did exist, he was probably not a king of some uh, wealthy city named Jerusalem, uh, a king of a kingdom, but probably just some little local warlord read, uh, leading a band of marauders here and there, but not some great kingdom like we read about in the Bible. And certainly Solomon would not have had the great riches that he had. And yet again and again, we find what the Bible says is verified in historical and archaeological fact. If you happen to have read the Jerusalem Post a few days ago, you would discover that just this month, the archaeologists digging in Jerusalem, right across from the Temple Mount, some of you have been to the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, and you sat on the southern steps, and you looked out over the, what used to be the city of David. And if you did, right down below you, across from the steps, you saw a fenced-in area where the archaeologists have been digging. And they just keep going and going and going and going. And they're digging right in that area, which we believe uh, where David and Solomon's palace and houses were located. This month, they uncovered a whole set of ivory inlays, very expensive, very costly. And they dated those things to the time of David and Solomon. Inlays, like, would be put in very expensive furniture. The Bible is not full of myth and legend. The Bible is God's book. What we have here is a book that you can trust. But not only is there a book that you can trust, but what we find and discover from this is there also there's a God you can trust. When Abram came back from his battle and uh, Melchizedek came out to meet him, and Melchizedek, maybe you recall, is listed as the king of Salem, Salem. Most people believe that that is what became Jerusalem, but it's in the same area. He is the king there, and he comes out uh, to meet uh, Abram, and notice what he says to him in verses 19 and 20. Blessed be Abram by 
uh, El Elyon, God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. Blessed be the God Most High who has delivered, who has delivered your enemies into your hands. God Almighty has, the God Most High, the God of heaven and earth. What we discover here is there is a God you can trust. Now, what does God have to do this with this? Well, you remember back in the 12th chapter of Genesis, God was making a promise to Abram. I referred to it earlier. He said, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. These kings and these people had brought dishonor and disrepute to Abram's family. They should have left Lot alone, but they didn't. And God's reputation now here at the point, will he keep his promise to Abram? He does. He does. And God will always keep his promises. There is a God you can trust in this scripture. Well, that's real nice for some historical event that took place 4,000 years ago. But what does that have to do with me? What does that matter to me? Well, I want you to know you need a God you can trust. If money is your God, you better find another one. Money will come and go. If success is your God, choose a different one because success can leave like the wind. If fame and fortune is your God, forget about it. It'll be gone tomorrow. But there is one who is indeed God. And that God sent his only son to this earth to die for your sins. He loves you. He cares for you. And just like he took care of Abram and led Abram and brought him back victorious, there is a God you can trust and you can know that. There he is. A book you can trust, a God you can trust. Let me mention something else. There's also a person that you can trust. I find it very interesting that when Abram returned and came back near his home, he was met. He was met first by the king of Sodom who came out to, to greet him and is happy to say, Abram, I'll, I'll give all the stuff to you. Just let the people go. And Abram said to him, I don't need the stuff. God has taken care of me. And I don't want anybody thinking that I've been wealthy because uh, from you or anybody else, God is the one who has blessed me. But then out came this fellow named Melchizedek. What do we know about Melchizedek? We read about him in verse 18 and 19 and 20. What do we know about Melchizedek? Well, first of all, the Bible tells us he's a king. The king of Salem, or Salem, or Jerusalem. A king from Jerusalem. We also learn that he's a priest, a king and a priest. That's interesting, isn't it? Have you ever heard of one who was both king and priest? I have. You can read about him in your Bible. You can see him through the pages of the New Testament. You can worship him and you can pray to him for he is priest forever. The Bible said just like Melchizedek was both king and priest. He is king. He is priest. He is from Jerusalem. He is a priest 
of the God of gods, the most high God. We notice that he comes out and he pronounces a blessing on Abram, giving to him a blessing and receives gifts and offerings from Abram. This is this Melchizedek, king of righteousness, ruling over a city called peace. It sounds familiar. Maybe you'd like to turn in your Bibles with me to the book of Psalms. I want to look at Psalm 110. Here's something that was written by King David a thousand years later. And let's see what David had to say. In Psalm 110, I hear the pages turning. I like that sound. Those of you who are scrolling, I'm sorry I can't hear that. <laughs> but I like to hear the pages turn. As some of you are still turning, which means maybe you look in the middle of your Bible. Psalm 110, a psalm of David. The Lord, that's the Lord God, says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty shepherd or scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. You notice he's saying that Jehovah God says to my Lord, you sit at my right hand. You're the one that's going to rule. You will, I will make your enemies your footstool, and uh, you will send uh, your mighty scepter, your ruler. He will rule as king. Your people will offer themselves freely, verse 3, on the day of your power and holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. Look at verse 4. The Lord God has sworn and will not change his mind. You, who's he talking about? He's talking about this one that will sit on his throne. He's talking about the king, the one that David calls his Lord, the one that would succeed David one day. And he said, the Lord says to him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. You'll be a priest king just like Melchizedek was. By the way, there's something about Melchizedek that I didn't mention earlier. But if we were to turn in your Bibles another thousand years again, we would come to the book of Hebrews. And there we will find that the author of the book of Hebrews talks about this Jesus, who is a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. What were they seeing in Melchizedek? They were seeing in Melchizedek one who had no lineage. We know nothing. That doesn't mean Melchizedek didn't have a father and mother or sons and daughters. But what it means is, as far as we know from the Bible, we don't really know where he came from or who, who was before him, nor who came after him. So when we say you're a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, there's really no priest before you like you. There'll be none after you that is like you. You are the priest and you are king. You are the king of righteousness. You are the prince of peace. You are the ruling Messiah. And throughout Scripture, we see reference to this one so special. So when I say there's a person you can trust, what do I mean? I mean there is one who intervenes in your life, who comes along one day, 
Maybe you'd never recognized him. Maybe you'd never uh, seen him like you did when that day you were broken because there was someone that you cared for deeply, someone that you had reached out to, somebody that you had tried to provide for, you tried to teach them right, but instead they, they, they made bad choices. They insisted on going their own way. They insisted on choices that would, uh, that would uh, create problems and troubles in their life. And you saw that, and you wanted to warn them, and you wanted to help them. And then someone comes along Maybe it's, maybe it's a person, but through that person, God brings you an answer to your need, somebody to encourage you, somebody to bless you, like, like Melchizedek blessed Abram, to say to you, God has not forgotten his promise. God will keep his word. He always keeps his word, and he will take care of you. And that one came along, and he did, didn't he? A thousand years after Melchizedek met Abram on the outskirts of Jerusalem. A thousand years later, David in Jerusalem, Saul looked forward to that one who would come, who would be both king and priest. A thousand years later, the king came into the city. And when he came into the city, he died on a cross for you and for me, that we might know a forgiveness of sins. Now, that person, that child, that sibling, that niece or nephew, the one that you've tried and tried to help, you keep encouraging. You pray for them. You intervene for them. But I want you to know there is a God and we have a Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who's there to reach out and to help them and to reach them and to answer their needs. And He will answer your needs. What do you need? Well, you need a book that you can trust. And you have it. It has His words there for you. Search in it. You will find those words. What do you need? You need a God who will keep His promises so that when He says, Whoever calls upon me will not perish. You can trust that. You can believe that. You can believe that when he said, whoever believes in him will not perish. It's in the book. You have a God that you can trust. And you have this person. That person is the Lord Jesus Christ. If you want to know, does he care? All you have to do is go look at Jerusalem again. Remember there outside the city, a cross, there he gave his life. But there, very near, he came out of that grave. Redeemer, conqueror, Lord, and your high priest, he cares for you. What do you need to do? Trust the book. What do you need to do? Trust God. What do you need to do? Trust him. There was an old song we used to sing. It went like this, come every soul by sin oppressed, there's mercy with the Lord, and He will surely give you rest by trusting in His Word. Only trust Him. Only trust Him. Only trust Him now. Do you need a Savior? Everybody needs a Savior. Jesus Christ is your Savior if you'll trust Him. Open up your heart. 
Ask him to come into your life, forgive you of your sins, and save your soul, and he will do it.